Hello, and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm Tom Street, and today I have Tan Lovenstein. Lovenstein, yeah. <laughs> with me from the Australian Academy of Sciences, specifically from Future Earth Australia, yes. part of that. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Where do we start off with? Now you work in science policy. Yes. Right? But you, you were a scientist previously. Yes. Yeah, uh, evolutionary biologist. Yeah, I was sort of working in marine biology. Um, so I did my study up in Townsville at James Cook University, where I was doing my PhD looking at the effects of climate change on fish, mostly reef fish, but also I got to do a little side project on kingfish in um, New Zealand, which is pretty fun. But yeah, so I was a sort of practicing marine biologist slash evolutionary biologist, and now I've sort of moved into other stuff. Yeah. So, and so what got you into that initially? That's a great question. Um, so I guess, you know, way back when, when I was, you know, living in America, I'm American, um, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my undergrad study and figure out what I wanted to do, um, I knew that I was passionate about the environment and protecting it, and I thought that was something important, but I didn't really know the best way to... This is get at that. In, in undergrad. In undergrad. We, we were, yeah. So you're already studying science in undergrad? or? Well, so in America, you don't actually have to pick your major until your second year of undergrad. So you can so, start. And so not you're, really... just, you're just at university? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I was still trying to figure out you know, what I wanted to declare as my major. And I knew I was interested in the environment and I'd always loved you know, oceans. But saying I want to be a marine biologist, that's something I feel that. You know, you say it when you're a kid, but most people don't actually expect you to, to go and do that. And I didn't know anyone who had been a marine biologist as their job. Can, can we go? Yeah. So at uni like in, in the States, yeah. you just go to university. Like you just say, I'm going to a university. Yes. And you don't even know if you're going to be a doctor, an engineer, a yeah. scientist yeah. or a lawyer. I mean, some people do. Um, but you don't, you don't, you don't even, you don't have to say, I'm coming here to study this. No. I didn't even realize that. I knew that like yeah. it was much more open than Australia, mm. but that's a totally foreign concept for yeah. us. Well, a lot of them are liberal arts schools. Yeah. So you have to do a certain amount of, you know, um, literature, uh -huh. language and mathematics or critical thinking skills. And so you, t you tend to spend your first year, if you haven't declared a major, you yeah. just taking those general classes right. before you specialize. So, so here it's, it's really about like, oh, you get a certain number of points when you finish high school, mm. right? And then you can say, oh, I can apply for this course. Like yeah. if you do really well, then you can be a doctor or a lawyer at a particular university mm. and yeah, like the it's really like it's, yeah, it's totally course totally dependent different. for you to even get in in the first place, yeah. right? No, that's not whereas, how it works. Whereas though, in the yeah. states, it seems to be more focused on the university, seems to be yes. really, really important, which yeah, it yeah. isn't so much here. Mm. Um, so, and and I guess part of that is because it's like it's not course dependent. It's all like, do I have a higher score than I can get into this university? Yeah, it's about and the then, and then you do anything. Yeah, yeah. Once you get there, if they offer it as major, you can do it. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Sorry. So I interrupted you. you no, were, no. Yeah. Not good. So yeah. So I was trying to figure out what to do and, um, knew that I was interested in the environment. And so my freshman year, so the, the summer after my first year of undergrad, um, I was applying for different internships and things. And one of the internships that I ended up getting was to go down to Savannah, Georgia, which is down in a nice warm part of the United States. I'm originally from Boston, which is not a very warm place, but I got this internship to go down to Savannah, Georgia, and it was a National Science Foundation funded program where you essentially got to go to a different university and try out being a researcher. So they give you a, a small project that you can work on, and I happened to be placed in a program that was all about marine biology. So I met real marine biologists who were fully, you know, full-time employed. That was their their job. And I had never met one before. And I was like, wow, this seems like it's actually a, a viable career path. Like, you could, I could actually really do this if I wanted. So that's when I sort of decided, like, oh, I'm going to study marine biology. The only problem is my undergrad university did not have a marine biology program. So I ended up majoring in ecology and evolutionary biology as sort of a general introduction to those topics and then I knew that if I wanted to do further study I could do that in grad school and focus on a particular area right what is evolutionary biology so yeah that's a good question evolutionary biology is about studying evolutionary processes broadly speaking so you could be looking at 
you know, how different um, animals like develop um, from embryos or something. What I was more interested in is asking how do animals and, and plants and other organisms adapt and change over time. So Through the evolutionary process. Yeah, and, right. and in particular, you know, talking about or thinking about climate change and how is that impacting animals' abilities to adapt, to survive, basically, given that they're now experiencing really different environments than even those of their, you know, parents or, or grandparents. Right, so you were saying you worked with fish in ocean fish, right, in, yes. in, in that respect. <laughs> and so I'm guessing um, if, if you see like warmer waters, mm. for instance, due to climate change, that you might get the fish that are from within a species. Like mm. some maybe have predisposition to be exactly. better in warm water than others. And the yes. ones that like the warm water survive and mm -hmm. have babies and yep. the ones that have genetics that mean they don't like warm water die. Yes. Yeah. And so that's you, you, like that's a simple example of yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's saying you know why is it that some species are might be able to adapt, are some species not yeah. able to adapt? Yeah, are there even fish within that species that like the warmer water, or do yeah. all of them hate it? Right. So they might just not have a genetic base. Like it just might be too far outside of mm. the ballpark of what they're genetically predisposed to. Yes. For them to be able to adapt to it. Yeah. 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 So it's all about that sort of stuff is, is what I was interested in studying yeah. then in graduate school when okay. I got to, well, I did, I did some work actually with fish in my undergrad, which was just a fluke. I happened to have a professor there who was like the one person studying fish. And I was like, I'm going to go work with her. And so that was really cool. I got to go to, um, Corsica, which is an island off the coast of Italy and France. And there was a beautiful research station there. And we got to dive down and we were observing these fish called oscillated wrasses. These cute little guys. And they have really interesting um, mating behaviors, which I can divert and talk about for a little bit. They're pretty cool, actually. Yeah. So um, there's three different types of males in this fish species. You have first nesting males, and these are like the big guys. They tend to be bigger body size. They have really nice color patterns and they do what it, what it says in their name. They build nests out of like bits of seaweed and debris that they find. Um, and they do that to protect eggs. So when a female decides she wants to mate with a male, she'll go for a nesting male because she knows he's going to protect the eggs and keep them safe. He'll also like fan them with his tail to make sure they're getting oxygenated water. So the male fish are doing the They're the doing parenting. parental care. Yeah. 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 It's so cool. Which is quite different from most animal species. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And so, you know, uh, when a female wants to mate with a male, she'll go to the nest, uh -huh. which he will have attracted her to, and then she'll lay her eggs and he'll and drop like, wow, his sperm. And they'll be like, wow, that's a nice and, nest. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. so that's sort of like one male type. But then you also have what are called sneaker males, uh -huh. and they actually are much smaller in body size. They look like females. And what they do is they hang around nests and they'll wait until they see that a female is about to, you know, drop her eggs and he'll sort of basically, you know, rush into the nest, drop his sperm and then run away <laughs> and doesn't provide any parental care, doesn't, you know, he's like a deadbeat, like he doesn't do anything. He just right. drops off his sperm and runs away. <laughs> and they do it without the nesting male noticing. Is well, that they right? try because otherwise the nesting male would chase abandon, them away. Or, and maybe abandon the eggs? Or? No, he wouldn't abandon the eggs, but he'll try and chase the, the sneaker male away. Okay. He's like, what are you doing, man? I've built this nest. I'm right. really proud of it. Why are you? Right. <laughs> why are you doing this? And I guess they've already like um, probably fertilized a number of those eggs as yeah, well. Yeah. So they think at least some of them are going to be my kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So they still provide the parental care, and that's yeah. how these sneaker males are able to like proliferate in the right. population. Yeah. And then, and then, like their kids will turn out to be like sneaker males. Mm -hmm. Which are, are they smaller? Are they? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they look like fast females. and small. They look like oh, yeah. so they even trick them. They trick them. Yeah. So they think oh, maybe you're gonna lay some eggs in my nest, mm. and then they're like no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then there's a third type, which is uh, they call them satellite males, and they are almost the worst of the type, I think, because. They'll pretend to be buddies with the nesting males. They'll be like, oh, I'm your bro. Like, I'm here to, um, I'll s help you chase away those so they pesky look like, sneaker So they males. look like males. Yeah. Do so they're males like sometimes, do they sometimes, oh, do they sometimes collaborate on nest building? Like two males or? No, not that, that I'm aware of. I think it's just the one will build his own nest. But there'll be why multiple would they put nests up, why would they? Why would they put up with 
another smaller one. Well, so kind of how it works is the satellite male is thought to, he'll be like, you know, you know, not that they're talking, but he will help chase away other sneaker males, which would, you know, make the nesting male think, oh, this is, this is like a friendly person. But then he'll do the same thing and sneak, you know, dropping off his sperm into the nest when the nesting male and is looking. And then run away or? No, he'll stick around. Okay. Because he well, tries to sounds, do it I mean, that sounds like that's around. a bit of a collaboration. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like a very complex, you know, reproductive system. And anyway, so I wasn't there to study that. I was there to study the effects of temperature on these fish and seeing, you know, how does that affect, um, I think I was looking at eggs. Um, whether it would affect their egg development and, and change different things like that. But, oh, gosh, that was ages ago. <laughs> right. So do you, do you know, did temperature affect their egg development? Or? From what I recall, um, it was, you know, my very first experiment. And um, uh, I had never, you know, um, raised fish in a lab before. It was all brand new. And I think we ended up losing most of the high-temperature eggs to a fungus. <laughs> Right. So, I couldn't so it was even, bad. Was that it was, mean temperature I mean, it was, bad? It them? was bad because, you know, there, we didn't have any um, nesting males in those tanks. It was just eggs. So there was no males to, you know, take care of. And I think, and I, this may be a stretch, but I think I remember that if, you know, one of the eggs developed one of these funguses, like the nesting male would get rid of it. He would go and say, oh, this one's infected. I don't want this to spread to the rest of the bunch. Um, but because there were no nesting males in that, um, tank with them, then, you know, there was no one to do that. And it spread to all of the eggs. And so we had very few viable ones left. So I couldn't say specific things about, you know, the size of the egg or the pace of development because they all ended up dying. Right. So it was a yeah. bit inconclusive. It so, was, yeah. Yeah. So you're thinking fungus might be a bit more of a problem, but it would be different if there was actually a nesting male there. It might yeah, have yeah. played out differently. Yeah. yeah so okay. that was sort of my first foray into experiments with fish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's a part of science, right? Mm. Is that it doesn't always work out how you think it's going out. to, and, and, and maybe that's a result mm. that's meaningful. It is, yeah, because I was super disappointed, you know, initially in saying, "Well, I guess I can't. We can't use any of this data." And my professor was like, "Hold on, like this is a result. You know, it's not what you expected, but it's an interesting one, and we can still write about it." Right. Yeah. And um, so something I've talked a bit with on the podcast with various different scientists is yeah. uh, the open science movement. Have, huh. you, have you heard of that? It's about, you know, um, making sure your data and your, um, you know, your papers are available to the general public. Is that what it is? Um, no, I'm not sure if that's part of it, but what I, what I think the main thing is, is uh, to, to, um, to push back against the, the publication bias for mm. when you do a experiment mm. and you get a result that shows a difference between a couple of treatments. Mm. So, so a drug, for instance, if yeah. you test a drug and you find that the drug cures cancer, mm. well, everyone's going to be interested in that and you can publish that paper easily, right? Yes. <laughs> but if you test a drug and you discover that that has no impact, mm. then that's much less likely to get published. Who's yes. interested in, oh, here, we tested this substance you've never heard of and it has no impact. Yeah. No one's interested in that and doesn't get published. Mm. But it's actually important mm. um, because you can maybe that same drug gets tested by 20 different people mm. And just by chance, the 20th person thinks that they've found an impact just because of um, that there's like an unlikely, all the people that they test happen to just get better anyway. Oh, and see. because it's been tested so many times, right? Like mm. occasionally you get a false positive. Yeah. So it's, it's, it skews people's perception, right? Yeah, of the science yeah. that's been done in all these sort of ways. Mm. Um, and it's, I think there's a lot of scientists thinking, oh, what's important that we actually know all of the research that's just found that something didn't have an impact. Yeah, and absolutely. And so they're trying to, um, like there's a growing movement to publish, to, to say, I'm doing this research before you've actually done the experiment. Lay out, this is the, this is the mm. experiment that we're going to do. Mm. And then no matter what the results are, yeah. that that gets published somewhere. Yeah. And yeah, so that you can say, oh, we tested this drug or we like put these mm. fish eggs in hot and cold water and saw what happened. And maybe we we found that like the hot and cold water or the drug didn't make any difference. Yeah. Yeah. And like that's actually important for people to know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, 
Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and, and <laughs> worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I, I, it's, it's, I, it seems to me that that's an important step for, to improve the the institutions of science. To, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so going back to your story. Yeah. Yeah. So you 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 did this um, awesome work in Corsica, which yeah. sounds sounds like a lot of fun. And oh, then so I was so spoiled. I mean, one of the perks of being a marine biologist is you get to do really cool uh, field work. You get to go to very interesting places. Yeah. So that was gorgeous. It was my first time, I think, going to the Mediterranean and oh, wish I could go back. <laughs> um, yeah. And then and then what what did you get up to next? Yeah. So that was sort of what I did during my undergrad. And I, again, you know, had done study in ecology and evolutionary biology. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a researcher full time, but I knew that I was, again, still really passionate about climate change, the environment, wanting to do something. So I did a brief internship um, in the States at an organization called NOAA, which is sort of like AIMS here, the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Okay. So NOAA stands for the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, I believe. <laughs> and I was there um, working on um, social media stuff, um, but also just sort of figuring out, you know, how does this government organization work that works on ocean stuff? So I did a short internship there. And then I did a short internship um, in Washington, D.C. So sort of like, you know, our Canberra, where I went and I was working at this small nonprofit called the Marine Conservation Institute. And um, they were all about, you know, conserving the marine environment. So talking about creating new marine protected areas and how can we make sure that we're minimizing the impacts of climate change on marine areas. And I had a great time, um, lots of fun. But uh, as I was sort of networking down there and trying to figure out, could I turn this into a job? Because it was just an unpaid internship. Um, a lot of the people I talked to said, you seem great, but, you know, unless you have a master's degree, we can't hire you. So I was like, all right, <laughs> I got to go do some more study. So I ended up um, in my undergrad thesis about those wrasses that I was talking about. I kept citing the same professor over and over and he was here in Australia. So I thought, well, you know, our interests overlap. So I emailed him just out of the blue and said, that's awesome. You? You, yeah. <laughs> so you found the one person in the world that you're like, I want to work with this person. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you emailed them. And I just emailed him and said, you know, are you taking students? And he was like, yes, you should apply for this scholarship. So he helped me put together an application package. And then I found out on Christmas Eve that I had gotten this scholarship and that I would be moving to Australia, which is like such a big moment. And that, what, a, what a Christmas present, that's, right? That's awesome. And I, I kind of wish that, yeah. Um, well, I, I think that's a good approach that the mm -hmm. people are really passionate about something and that find the, the group or the organization or the person you want to work with mm. and then go for that. Yeah. You know, and it, yeah. Well, it was, it just was all very serendipitous. It felt like you're like, oh, what? He's interested and I'm interested. And mm. so then I moved to, to Townsville. Um, at James Cook University, and I started out doing a research master's. Um, but after the first year, my professor was like, well, if you stay another two years, you can have a doctorate. Um, and getting a doctorate in the States takes much longer. It's like five or six years. So I was like, well, <laughs> I can just stick around here. I'm and having a good time. And <laughs> yeah, does an Australian doctorate count back in the States? Like it does you, count, yeah? yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different system. Um, but you know, you come out with really strong research skills. So, so yeah, so that's how I sort of ended up in, in Townsville doing more research on climate change on fish. So it was kind of a nice continuation of what I had done in my undergrad. Great. Uh, do you have any interesting research or the stuff you're working on there? That yeah. So the, the main thing that I was looking at was, um, particularly the effects of um, increased temperature and also increased acidification on these fish. Right. So, so, so the things that are happening due to increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, exactly. the, wor the world's warming up, but also the carbon dioxide's going into our oceans and, yeah. and that, that makes it more acidic. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Which is a, something that uh, people are worried about for a lot of sea creatures because the Yeah. So like, you know, some of the more obvious effects are in um, mollusks like oysters like um, if they're in very acidic water it can make their shells like much thinner and, and brittle and that can mm. be because you know, it's, really it's made bad. of ca calcium carbonate that yeah. dissolves mm. 
yeah, I, I don't understand the chemistry really well, but the acidity or the d- yeah. means that the calcium carbonate dissolves more. It's harder to form it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's a real big problem if you are any organism that has calcium carbonate in your shell, in mm. your skeleton. Which is a lot of things. Which is right? a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Like oysters, mm. shell, all the shellfish. Yeah, yeah. Co- corals, is that calcium carbonate? or They are affected by it, but it's a different process. Okay. And I wish I could speak more to yeah. it. And then there's a lot of like yeah. little microorganisms. Um, what are they called? That like pteropods oh and 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 some that have like these beautiful if you look at them under a microscope these beautiful shapes and they're really mm. diverse um they're floating around like the really important part of the marine ecosystem i'm just like forget- plankton maybe they're called plankton i don't know but there's a whole lot of little micro things that yes. are floating around that build the this structures out of mm. i believe calcium carbonate yeah, yeah. and they're worried that this this microscopic level of the yeah. ecosystem might just collapse in the future mm. when it gets too acidic yeah, yeah. Anyway, what, what, so what were you were, what yeah, specifically so were you doing? Yeah. I was interested in seeing the effects of that on fish because they're a little less obvious than, you know, my well, shell has dissolved. Okay, <laughs> but maybe acidity is going to f- impact them as well. Yeah. yeah, and so basically the research says that um, what uh, acidification does to fish is it messes with their behavioral traits. Right. So it's not like you know, their skeletons are dissolving, but it, it, it can impact um, like their sense of smell, their olfaction. So um, under normal circumstances, a fish might use its sense of smell to, um, you know, return to its um, home reef if it's gotten away from it. It can use it to sense if predators are around, um, you know, finding mates, finding partners, its sense of smell is pretty important. But they found that under acidified conditions, it actually messes with their sense of olfaction. And so now all of a sudden, they might not sense if there's a predator nearby, they might not be able to smell it. And, you know, their eyesight, it's not always great for fish. So they are reliant on senses like smell. And so if they can't smell yeah. a predator coming, that's not so great for They that smell fish. predators coming. Well, yeah, you can. S- there's a scent of a predator. I mean, I'm, you know, we're pretty bad as humans uh-huh. at smelling but things. I mean, right? It would seem to me yeah. that smells move slowly, right, through the water, and well, that, that a predator would quick, come yeah. fast. But no, sometimes that the smell, or maybe the predators are sort of wandering around. They're trying yeah. to smell out what they're trying to eat as well, maybe. Yeah, smell and is a lot more important on the reef than it is for like yeah. you know, us. It's like think so, of dogs, you know, they're always sniffing around. You're like, what are you, yeah. what is that? What are you doing? <laughs> right, right. There's yeah. this complex, you know, scent environment yeah. that we can't perceive. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I, I mean, yeah, I guess. I'm, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. And that's interesting. Another yeah. thing that they can smell is this thing called chemical alarm cues. And so let's say, you know, I'm a little fish out on the reef and another fish friend of mine, um, is attacked by a predator that can release this alarm cue this chemical cue into the water that other fish know is like a scent of danger because either that fish has just narrowly escaped attack and it's trying to warn other people or it's been eaten right but they're trying to help each other out exactly so maybe they're related to the other fish that are nearby actually yeah that would be an evolutionary explanation yes like you know the chemical alarm cue from the same um species uh, a fish would be more reactive to that than a chemical alarm cue of an, a less related species. Right. Yeah. And so, but, you know, again, with the acidified water, they s- lose the ability to smell those alarm cues. And so they wouldn't know, oh, there's some danger nearby and I should hide. So what do yeah. we do with that information? That we, that like, well, we're like, okay, it yeah. seems like fish, maybe I'm going to smell so well in the future. Mm. Well, and that's, <laughs> that's an important question more broadly is, you know, when I was asking myself as I'm doing this research, it seems really important and I want more people to know about it. But at the end of the day, I'm just saying, this is another thing that's bad about climate change. Okay. And what can I among, do among to fix it? Yeah. So many others. Yeah. Yeah. Like so many others. Exactly. Yeah. And it can be, um, you know, a little frustrating and disheartening in that space because you see, in, you know, all this environmental destruction and there's not much that I was doing about it, at least as an early career researcher, Mm. you can sometimes be limited in the ways that you can impact, you know, what's going to happen about that other than 
telling people about it and trying to spread information about your research. But that's sort of how I ended up then moving into my current role, which is working more at the interface between science and policy and saying, okay, so we know this thing's bad. We know climate change is bad. So how can I now get that information into the hands of decision makers who are going to do something about Actually it? Actually do something about it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 So could you, you could spend for forever millions of years studying yeah. all the different ways that a massive uh, ecosystem change like climate change is going to mm. impact everything. Exactly. But... But you, oh, I want to do really, something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So when I was finishing my doctorate, you know, writing up all my last papers and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, um, I was applying to a range of different positions. And, you know, I had previously done a, an internship at a small nonprofit in Washington, D.C. before my um, before I did my doctorate. So I was thinking, OK, maybe I could work at a nonprofit. Um, maybe I want to work in the policy space and think about decision makers and their influence on environmental issues. Maybe I want to work in communication and talking about these things. And so I ended up uh, applying for a job, that my job that I have now, um, and it was advertised as working in sustainability policy. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's directly related to what I was doing. You know, when I think of sustainability, it's, you know, uh, saving water or circular economy and how could we reuse different materials and that's not really what I studied but I applied for the role and I got it and then I kind of jumped into this new space so the Australian Academy of Science is a non-profit organization so we're not government we're not at the ANU sometimes people think we're part of the university but we're not we're our own thing we're at the Shine Dome in Canberra it's that nice old shiny building that looks kind of like a spaceship. in the ANU there so it's not part of no, no, it's right near the ANU campus, okay. but it's just south of it. And it's its own its own independent organization. And so I was interested in in the work that they were doing because my division in particular is called Future Earth Australia. And so we sit in the science policy unit and basically what we do is we're um, part of this global future earth network. And that's a network that broadly aims to achieve sustainability through research and innovation. So we take that global vision and apply it down at the Australia national level and see what we can do using our independence and our convening power to bring together different, you know, groups of people, you know, largely, re you know, relying on the research community, but then also saying, you know, can we bring in decision makers? Can we bring in industry? Um, community groups, bring them all together and say, you know, how can we as a group achieve sustainability, broadly speaking? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're getting scientists from universities and CSIRO mm -hmm. and they're saying, okay, this is what we understand about what problem is, perhaps mm -hmm. with sustainability, i.e. Yeah. climate change. Or when I was at university, I had a professor as a marine biologist and he was looking at... Um, uh, at lobsters, right? Ah. That you know, important fisheries industry down in Tasmania, mm -hmm. and he, he he was like, okay, we need to do this, this, and this mm. in order to conserve them. Mm. But there are, then there's all of these factors that perhaps he's not an expert in, in, in terms yeah. of uh, like the economic and mm. business interests and different push and pull factors of the industry, yeah. and then of government, and mm. and and they're all really important. You can't just say, you know, scientifically, he'd go into meetings mm. and say, look, this is what we should do for the best conservation and mm -hmm. maximum catch. But then there's all these other factors exactly. that come into play, and you yeah. need to have those other people in the room because you can't just in reality, you can't just roll out what the best practice is according to the science. You have to work mm. with well, that's a big frustration. With the realities yeah. of the industry and, and, and other um, voices, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. So like a lot of researchers, if, they, if they've never done that sort of work before, can get really frustrated when they're like, but this is the best, this is the best science. Uh -huh. And, you know, it's, what we can do is say, here is the best science present it to the decision makers but being aware that yeah you know if, if we, the best practice is we fully shut down 12 industries that's not going to work. People need to work. We can't just yeah. abandon them and say, wow, you're on your own. You know, we need to think about, okay, how can we do this in a way that's going to benefit the environment, but also people? Cause yeah. And, it, and maybe not de too. destroy yeah. things, people's investments or, mm. or work with the practicalities of how that transition can take place. Yeah. So uh, it's a tricky, it's a tricky space and one mm. that, you know, I didn't really have much 
direct experience. Do, do you have an example of, 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 of yeah. somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the big project that I have been working on at my job for the past you know, year, 18 months, is um, one of the things that we do at Future Earth Australia is create these 10-year national strategies. Um, and they'll be around different themes. So um, before I started, or just when I was starting the role, they were just finishing up a strategy about sustainable cities and regions. So talking about urban sustainability issues. But what was nice is as I sort of stepped into the role, they had just decided, oh, we're going to do a strategy on sustainable oceans and coasts. And I was like, all right, this is in my wheelhouse. (laughs) I know something about this and I can help. And so when they were thinking about why they wanted to focus on oceans and coasts, I mean, you have the obvious, you know, we know climate change is impacting these areas. We know there's multiple cumulative impacts all happening at the same time. And we know, you know, the blue economy. So that's all of the marine industries that use marine resources. It's doubled in Australia in the past decade, and it's projected to just keep increasing. So we need to think about how are we going to make sure we're using these resources in a way that's sustainable? How can we do it in a way that's equitable for different people? So that's sort of why they wanted to focus on this. And sort of in an international context, um, 2021 to 2030 is the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainability. So the UN is saying we know that oceans are important. We know that we have to manage them in a sustainable way. And then there's also this initiative happening that Australia is a part of called the High Level Panel for a Sustainable Ocean Economy. And it's basically 14 14 initially countries, and then I think now 15 that France has joined, who all came together to say, we know we want to have sustainable ocean economies. We know we want to manage our oceans sustainably. um, So let's work together and figure out what that would look like and what our values would be. So all of this was happening at the same time. And And, and I'm I'm guessing there's a lot of focus on oceans because... We've just been ramping up more and more and more our effectiveness of pulling fish out of the sea, basically. Mm, stuff like that as well. Yeah. yeah I, I, so, the, and, and we're sort of getting to the limits where it's, we're pulling, like the, the fish stocks are going to collapse around the world because we're pulling so much out so effectively. Mm. And it's, it's fairly unregulated. It seems like it's a bit of a wild west out there in the blue <laughs> ocean with, where people are just pulling it out. There's no real regulation and... And well, countries yeah. have to come together to to find some way to manage that so that mm. there is an ongoing industry rather yeah. than it just gets totally depleted. I mean, yeah, fish are a hugely important source of protein for like many people around the world. But then what you're talking about is like there's something called IUU fishing, which stands for illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing. And which, it's, which is huge. right? It's huge. It's this huge issue that like you know, many countries are dealing with and not always knowing what's the best way we should deal with this. How are we going to put in policies in place that are going to protect our fisheries? Because even if we're managing our own fisheries really well, if somebody else is coming in and taking them, then that means that we're taking out too many, like you were saying, and then that could cause the fishery stocks to collapse. And yeah. Nobody and, wants and, that. And a, lot, and a lot of areas are sort of public domain, right, in, mm. of the ocean, or is that not true? Um, yeah, there's like international waters. Once you get past the exclusive economic zone is what yeah, it's called of right. a country. Which is most of the ocean is is outside of exclusive economic zones. You know? Oh, that's a good question that I don't know the answer okay. to. <laughs> it's a lot of it, but so, yeah. you'd be surprised. You know, Australia has a huge one because I think it extends like many nautical miles, hundreds of nautical miles beyond your coastline. So it's this big, huge ring around the country. Right. So, so you guys at Future Earth Australia, you you mm. you, you started working on um, looking at this sort of sustainability of of marine or like aquatic ecosystems, yeah. marine and oceans aquatic. and coasts. So yeah, oh, ocean and coast. That was yep. something we did sort of deliberately because, you know, a lot of times the way that we manage oceans is totally different from how we manage coasts. But we know that things that happen on land affect the ocean and mm-hmm. vice versa, mm-hmm. you know? So, so if you create yeah. a lot of like fertilizer and erosion runoff into the Great Barrier Reef, mm-hmm. that, that nutrient flux has a massive impact exactly. on the ecosystem there, for instance. Yeah. So you need to yeah. be thinking about, you know, what's happening in agricultural practices on land because that's going to affect the reef, even though, you know, you have to uh, ride a boat out, you know, an hour or two to get to the reef, that same water is connected to the water that was in that estuary earlier and up that creek. So it's about saying we need to think about these areas holistically and see them as one interconnected whole rather than as two distinct parts because that doesn't really 
makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, how did that go? Like, what, what sort of did you come up with? Did you talk <laughs> to some great scientists and industry yes. people and come up with some great policy initiatives? Yeah, it well, was a really cool process, actually. So, like, how we sort of run it is, um, you know, we had started this initiative back in March 2020. It was like the last day that you could have had an in-person meeting in March 2020 before COVID. Wow. So we were very lucky. And we had brought in all these different experts across ocean and coastal spaces to Canberra to sort of set a, a goal and an aim and an overarching vision for what this strategy would look like. And then from that group, as well as some other people we reached out to, we formed what's called an expert working group. And, and they these, were, are, these are basically scientists? Or? Scientists. Some were coming from like government, local government associations, or uh, CSIRO or AIMS, all these different experts across these different areas. And the idea is they would sort of provide sort of top-down and like strategic guidance into the document. So they were there to be sort of the experts. They would help us look up the literature. They would help us set these ideas. And then we wanted to have this really strong sort of bottom-up um, input into the strategy. So we conducted a series of virtual, because in 2020, <laughs> virtual consultation workshops, and we would invite all different stakeholder groups to those. We had one in every state and territory. So we would talk to um, different levels of government. We would talk to First Nations people. We would talk to industry, um, community groups, civil society, just anyone who was really interested in asking them, what do you want a sustainable ocean and coast in Australia to look like for the next 10 years? What would that look like? What would you change? And so together, that sort of top-down stuff from the expert working group and the bottom-up stuff from those consultation workshops, we took all of that information and turned it into this strategy document that... Very excited to say it was released um, in June, so pretty recently, but it took, you know, a full year to like pull it all together and figure out how we could achieve one sort of central vision and set of recommendations from all these very different inputs. Because, you know, obviously what they want in the Northern Territory is very different from what people are looking for in Tasmania. Totally different issues, totally different groups. And, and how do you turn that into one central document? But that's what we did. Right. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And, and, um, and what do you think the outcomes from, from that will be? Is that, is that something for um, the national government to look at and, yeah. and hopefully take something from? Yeah. yeah. So there's this set of sort of seven recommendations in it of, you know, actions that we think and that the community thinks, you know, it's not really what I think. I just kind of pulled it all together, but it's not a me document. It's all these other people saying, here's what we want for sustainable oceans and coasts. Here's how this can be done. And then now we're going and talking to different groups, whether that's, you know, um, more local government type people, but also trying to talk to people at the state and federal levels and saying, you know, this is a concern that people have. They are very passionate about this issue. So, you know, do you want to adopt certain recommendations? Do you want to do different things with them? Like, how can you make this happen? And it's not just for federal government either, although that is a big um, audience for it, because we know that, you know, one sector isn't going to solve this huge sustainability issue. So it's also saying, oh, industry groups, how can you work to, you know, decarbonize your industries that are working in the marine space so that we aren't going to make climate change worse? And how can we make sure that community groups, like people doing, you know, land care and really cool, like local initiatives, how are they going to have enough funding so that they can keep doing the good work that they're doing and connect with each other so that they can share best practices? So there's lots of little bits that different groups can do. Right, right. But this sort of brings all of these experts and stakeholders um, together to, mm. to create a sort of vision. Yeah. 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 Does this... It's. Um, would the same sort of process potentially be happening inside, say, um, state and national government as well? Mm. I mean, it sounds like something that, that public service servants would do, at least on some issues, if not this one specifically. You know, they, they bring together the different stakeholders and come up with advice to government about... I mean, that's what the public service does, right? Mm. I mean, I can't speak... I'm not a <laughs> public servant. <laughs> I have never have been one, so I don't really know what they would be doing. But, yeah, I mean, they're definitely interested in, in knowing that kind of information and certainly it would be happening at, 
you know, local levels. It's very hard to do things nationally, but there's definitely different processes for it. But I'm I'm not an expert on those. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. It's something I'm interested to learn about. Like yeah. How, yeah. Yeah. You're how, gonna have to have a government person on next. I think. Whoa, <laughs> that's very difficult. I think they're they're <laughs> yeah. very cautious about what you know. No, it's that's it's fair not enough. straightforward. I think in yeah, terms of getting yeah. people to talk about that stuff. Mm. Yeah. But I. Yeah, we have had um, some ACT government ministers. We had Shane wow. Radbury, who's the environment minister for the ACT, on the show. That's so awesome. I guess they're the, it's the politicians that, in some ways, the freest to talk. It's mm. not they can say whatever they like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, whether they do or not, it's another thing. But yeah, I think that's something I'm interested in looking to in future yeah. shows. Yeah, well, I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so. Do, do you feel like there's it's ads? I mean, that's pretty recent. Mm. June has just come out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, do you, do you feel like you've seen any groups taking action on the basis of that, or you had good some yeah. conversations? I mean, yeah, it's still early days, but one thing that's been really nice is I just um, came back from a conference in Cairns like a week or two ago now, and it was called the Coast to Coast Conference, and it's a bunch of coastal practitioners and like engineers and local government people. It it was hybrid because you know, COVID's not great right now, but we had some people from Queensland and some people from Tasmania and myself got to go up to Cairns. And, and one of the cool outcomes of that was I got to present about this strategy and people were really, you know, some people had been involved in the process and others hadn't heard of it, but were very supportive. And so the conference delegates um, voted to formally endorse the strategy and we, you know, put out a media release about it and I got to talk to another <laughs> radio station about it. And it was really cool because it shows that people are saying, you know, this is something that we care about as coastal practitioners and we want to be able to take it to our ministers and our local government people and say, look at this. Other people are doing this too. We want to get involved. So yeah, it's still early days, but we're still feeling pretty positive about it and and looking forward to implementing it. Great. Yeah. yeah. So it, I mean, it gives a vision and a direction that people mm. can unite around, I exactly. guess, and yeah. it's cohesive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's good um, fun. Yeah. Um, so another thing you do mm -hmm. is is you have your own science podcast. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do, in fact. Yes. Yeah. Um, so how long have you been doing that? I mean, I think it's only existed in podcast form for less than a year, but uh, it's something that I've been doing for like three years. Right. So, yeah. The so And you got into that for similar reasons, that perhaps I'm doing this and, and, and that you got into your policy role is that... Yeah. You, 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 I guess you decided that, okay, there is like quite a lot of science out there, but there's not enough attention being paid to mm -hmm. it. And, yeah. and perhaps that's more important is that we actually act on what we know rather than continue to accumulate more knowledge that nobody does anything about. I mean, that's certainly mm. um, why I'm not a scientist, I think, <laughs> and, and why I'm doing this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, or this radio show. Mm. Yeah, so... So is that kind of your thinking and why you got into it or? So, sort of. It's also just a bit of fun, which is nice. So yeah. so how, to, how it sort of originated is I was doing this science communication competition during my PhD. It was called Fame Lab. Yeah. And you had three minutes to summarize your research and you could have like cool props, but no slides. And it was meant for a general audience. And so I got to the national final of that, which was being held in Perth. And I met this guy named Ben McAllister, who was an astrophysicist and was also in this competition. And neither of us, you know, won or anything, but we, you know, hit it off. And he asked me if I would want to be a co-host with him for a science podcast. And I was like, that sounds like a lot of fun. So we decided that we were going to do it, but we we're both finishing our PhDs and we we're very stressed out and never making time for this. So he said, why don't we launch it live at the Perth Fringe World Festival? So like fringe festivals, you know, it's all these different independent acts that just come together at the same time. And Perth has a really, really great one. If you can ever get out there, it's good fun. So we did our first show live on stage in front of a, an audience of people. And we just talk about different science topics. So I tend to do things related to biology, marine stuff. That's sort of my wheelhouse. Whereas he's, you know, physics and we'll talk about different, we've done quantum mechanics and also like tech stuff. He's really good at that. Right. And so we just do research on a topic and the other person sort of asks questions and 
And it's also like a comedy show as well. So we call it science comedy because we're, we're kind of building it So is it that for... the name of the show, science comedy? No, it's called The Uncertainty Principle. The Uncertainty Principle. Yes. Okay, and it's Which a science comedy show. you can find on uh, wherever you get podcasts. Right, yep. So. <laughs> and and it's, it's just great fun for us to be able to talk about different science topics and... And, and have some fun with it. It's sort of designed for an adult audience because we've, we've noticed that at least um, here in Australia, you know, shows like this are fantastic. They're aimed at like a sort of general and public and adult audience. Um, but we definitely wanted to make sure that we were falling into that adult audience and not just science for kids because, you know, adults are curious people too. They want to learn about science. They want to talk about it. Yeah, there aren't course. always as many avenues that we had noticed at the time so it's it can be a little raunchy we have a good time oh, raunchy I mean, yeah <laughs> well you know we swear and we warn people of that before they book tickets to the show we're like don't bring your young children this is not not a show for kids but we just we have a good time with it and we interview different scientists so that's a lot of fun i get to learn brand new stuff and and we actually this last year i got to go to perth again um, to do the Fringe World show, and we won a comedy award, which was very fun and unexpected because neither of us are trained comedians, but we just sort of do improv because we go into the show and only one person knows what we're talking about. One person has done the research. So I might have done research on sea turtles, and I know everything about that. He knows nothing other than what he might have consumed through media or whatever. So his job is to listen, ask questions, and crack jokes. And it's all done, improvised, live on stage or live on the, the podcast. And then, yeah, we, we won a comedy award, which was very, very rewarding for us because we didn't expect that at all for some scientists to win one. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's, <laughs> yeah, managing to combine yeah, scientific uh, information and comedy at the same time. Is, yeah. Well, it's just impressive. a lot of things are very silly when you talk about them. Uh -huh. They or they, you can explore and find out. You know, what's the weirdest thing that this animal does, or like, what's the worst an experiment has ever gone for you? Science has a lot of humor in it, but we don't tend to talk about that always. We tend to be very serious and want to be perceived as very serious people, <laughs> even yeah. if we're not. <laughs> um, do I mean? Do you have an example of something that? from the, I don't know, in the natural world that it's like particularly. Oh, that's a good humans. question. Last, last week we were talking about fix, fish penises for like half oh, an okay, hour. Okay. So we can talk about so that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, we did our very first podcast episode was about bees, honeybees. Okay. And I don't know if you've heard about their reproductive process, but basically, no, um, so a queen bee will emerge from the hive. She'll go to this certain area where she's going to reproduce. And then a bunch of the male bees will be in that area with her. And basically... Sorry, so certain area. It's... I, I don't remember the term for it, but there's... They just know to go to this one certain area where they're... It'll be like a field somewhere where they're going to reproduce. Right. And... She, well, she has to leave her hive because all of the bees in her hive are genetically related to her. So that yeah. would not be great for her to have offspring that are... I thought they yeah. flew up in the air. They do, Female yeah. queen bees, like, they fly up really high. Yeah, yeah. And then all the male... Yes. That the hives produce special mating males. Like mm. most bees are just a females that never reproduce. They collect honey and mm. look after young, right? And then there's the queen bee. Mm -hmm. And then once in a while, they'll produce a few more queen bees that have to leave the hive. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, and God. go and start Honey their own. Honey bees are so fascinating. We could have another hour yeah. about those. But Yeah, anyway, so you're saying they get the, the, the queen bees are going off to mate in the yeah. special spot. Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah, like you said, they'll fly up high in the air and there'll be males from other hives because they don't want to reproduce within their own hive. Yeah. And basically, the, the male will um, mate with the queen, he will ejaculate, and then his penis falls off and then okay. he dies <laughs> and that's his whole life <laughs> it's very grotesque and extreme but that's how they made uh -huh. it's like a one final act <laughs> i think i think yeah for us you look at probably a lot of the sex acts from the animal kingdom and they're going to be pretty funny they yeah. well they're just so strange yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can be so strange yeah so yeah we find we try and find the humor in, in different topics <laughs> but it's a good time yeah yeah um Okay, well, that's awesome. So if, if people want to check out your podcast, that's the Uncertainty Principle. Principle. Yeah. yeah, we have a Twitter at PrincipleCast, or you can follow me on Twitter at ScienceTaren, and Ben is at Dr. B.T. McAllister. 
Awesome. Very yeah. into the very into the Twitter sphere. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to spruik or or say? Ooh, I mean. My podcast is the the thing that I usually spruik, but yeah. I guess more generally, if people are interested in science policy or promoting really good science, you know, institutes like the Australian Academy of Science and Future Earth Australia, um, that it can be hard to for those to get funded. We get a lot of funding from the government, but it's not always enough. So if you want to make a donation to there, that would be lovely. <laughs> and further the cause of science. In, in society exactly and trying you know we're just trying to promote the best practices of science for the betterment of Australia you know we want to make sure we're being the most sustainable we can be we're you know trying to not make climate change any worse that we're you know promoting a circular economy like I mentioned earlier do you know what a circular economy is well that's where instead of digging new stuff up out of the ground or mm. that, that you or producing new raw materials, mm -hmm. you reuse, so you recycle the materials from your car or your coke, everything, you know, yeah, your computer, yeah. you take those materials and then put them back into a new product rather than put exactly. them in landfill and create new primary yeah. products. Yeah. yeah, it's just trying to be more judicious with how we use resources because we know mm. some of them are not infinite. <laughs> some are, some aren't. And yeah. so how can and, we And even those ones stuff? that you can, like agricultural goods, mm. you're there's still um, a cost, you know, like currently mm. our, our machinery is run on, on non-renewable fossil fuels, for instance. Mm. So if you're producing a potato, which you can keep, you know, you keep growing potatoes every year, but yeah. you're using a lot of fossil fuels to create the fertilizers mm. and to run the machinery and, and, there's, and soils are generally getting worse rather than better mm. through agriculture. Yeah. So um, I'd, I, I would say basically none of our primary products, the way we produce them today, are really that sustainable over the longer term. You know, through a human lifetime, you mm. might not see a huge difference, but you, like we need, you know, hopefully these things are going to last for thousands of years exactly. rather than just another couple of generations. Well, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it's about. It's saying, you know, if recycling is great and we should definitely do it, but mm. it, wouldn't it be better if you could go you know, 10 steps back in the process of making that product and saying, let's rethink how we make this in the first place. Let's rethink the machinery. Can we run it on solar power? Let's rethink, do we need that much plastic uh, covering on these natural products? Can we just design them out of the system overall? So stuff like that. That's awesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we better go now. So <laughs> this has been Dr. Tan Lobenstein? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> got it. From, from Future Earth Australia in the Australian Academy of Science. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. <laughs>